I thought about beginning the sermon today with, with a test to see how much you know about our church. Question one on the test would be, uh, what is the mission statement of Living Word Lutheran Brethren Fellowship? And I'm pretty sure uh, everyone here would probably fail the test, uh, because I would have failed the test. Uh, when I first uh, took the call here, uh, I set out to, to memorize the mission statement, but obviously it didn't stick, uh, because uh, this week I was thinking about it, and I had to look uh, in our Constitution uh, to find out what it was. Uh, I, I think maybe one of the goals of our, this, this will be our 25th uh, anniversary as a church uh, this year, uh, maybe one of our goals is to revisit that statement and seek God's guidance and, and mission uh, for the future ministry here and, and uh, revisit our, our statement. Uh, but while I can't recite Living Word's uh, mission statement, I can recite, actually, the statement of uh, another church. Uh, there was a, a mega church that was uh, pretty influential and popular uh, 20 years ago that had a mission statement uh, that I, I can actually remember. And the statement goes uh, something like this. I, I did it from memory, so I didn't double check, but I'm pretty sure I'm, I, I'm on. The statement is this. Our mission is to turn irreligious people into fully devoted followers of Christ. I remember encountering that mission statement for the first time as a college student uh, through some curriculum that uh, my church, the church that I was attending, uh, had used from that uh, large church. And I had two, I remember having two simultaneous feelings, two feelings at the same time. The first was a sense of, of admiration because it was a catchy saying and it sounded really spiritual. And, and then uh, second, I remember as I thought about that mission statement, uh, having a bit of a sense of terror because I knew, uh, I knew my own heart. I knew that I was anything but a fully devoted follower of Christ. Uh, sure, I wanted to be that. I wanted to be, uh, pick your language, fully surrendered, on fire, fully devoted, sold out for Jesus, but then I would come back down to, to reality. Uh, some days, uh, my sin is so overwhelming that I don't know if I'm a partially devoted follower of Christ or a marginally devoted follower of Christ. And I think you probably have those days too. If the goal is to be a fully devoted follower of Christ, I doubt whether I could ever get there. Whether I could ever live up to that standard. Whether I could ever say those words of myself. I went to a, a conference one time at this church, this mega church, and that, that mantra, that mission statement was so embedded into people's minds that I remember uh, somebody got up on the main stage at this conference and, and introduced themselves, sort of like they were at an AA meeting. Uh, Hi, my name is Scott, and I am a fully devoted follower of Christ. Uh, and I remember wrestling with that and struggling uh, with it. Could I, could I say that of myself? And here I am, uh, decades later, getting ready to enter my 20th year of, uh, of church ministry, and I can't, with honesty, with integrity, say that I have arrived at that claim. But as I've become more theologically grounded, as I've 
grown deeper in my faith and my understanding of God's word as I've maybe even as I've seen the long-term fruit of that uh, fully devoted movement I've come to understand something uh, that the problem with that approach with that understanding of what we might call discipleship and ministry is that the entire system is built on the wrong measurement and this became clear to me when even the founder who coined that term uh, fell from grace in a very public way was showing to be shown to be engaged in uh, some really disturbing behavior so even the guy who who made the saying famous wasn't really fully devoted he was a sinner shocker right just like you and me with with a heart prone to wander like all of us a heart that is continually fighting against being fully devoted you see we never measure ourselves and particularly our faith uh, by looking within our assurance our hope our status as a follower of Christ is never determined by our own personal growth or by the passion that we feel the fervor with which we desire the Lord our assurance is never rooted in emotion or feeling because they will come and go they will ebb and flow and to do so to, to point others to their feelings and their behavior and their emotions and their morality for for hope and for assurance is actually to be confused or ignorant of something that scripture does a critical distinction that God's Word makes for us the distinction between what we often call law and gospel the understanding that God speaks primarily with two words words of law and words of promise or hope the gospel in our text for today uh, we see it worded as uh, the the contrast between law and promise that's the language that Paul uses in our text in Galatians from Galatians chapter 3 I will start in verse 15 Galatians chapter 3 verse 15 and I would remind you that this is God's word to us brothers and sisters let me take an example from everyday life just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established so it is in this case the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed scripture does not say and to seeds meaning many people but and to your seed meaning one person who is Christ what I mean is this the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise for if the inheritance depends on the law then it no longer depends on the promise but if but God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise why then was the law given at all it was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come the law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator a mediator however implies more than one party but God is one is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God 
Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin. So that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law. Locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Uh, May you speak and bring clarity to our minds and to our hearts today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If we misunderstand... The place and the function of the law. We will struggle to understand the beauty and joy of the gospel. I want you to hear this because this is so important. If we misunderstand the place, the function, the role, the purpose, the intent of the law, we will struggle, and I think I could be as bold as to say, we will never understand the true beauty and joy of the gospel. Uh, I've seen this truth play out in the lives of many Christians my entire life, and it's something that I continue to, to, to see quite mature believers even struggle with. Just how does the law fit into our lives as Christians? How does God's law impact my relationship with God? How how do I view and and, and interact with God's law in my daily life? And and so as we reflect on this passage from Galatians today, we're going to see how Paul brings great clarification regarding the place and role and function and work of the law in the lives of the believers in Galatia. Paul's going to, to teach us some things about the law that are tremendously freeing, incredibly important. And I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that this proper understanding of the law that we get in our text today is life-changing. I say that because it's changed my life. I, I spent, like some of you, spent many years struggling to come to terms with a God who made demands of my life that I could not live up to. Years spent feeling like a failure, like if I was just a little more spiritual, a little more disciplined, a little more on fire for the Lord, a little more committed, whatever it might be, that that maybe I could finally resolve that tension that I feel in my heart. If I could work a little harder, then maybe I could live up to that perceived image that I have of some, some far more spiritual people. But as I begin to understand what Paul teaches in our passage for today, I started to realize that I was striving for something that would never be reached. It was actually a misunderstanding of God's law that was causing me to to misunderstand God himself. If I'm honest, to have a, a certain level of resentment toward him. I think some of you have felt that. Some of you have expressed that struggle to me. Before we talk about what our passage teaches us about the law, let me give you a description of the law that might be 
helpful for you. Uh, The contrast, as Paul sets it up in our text today, between the law and the promise, or the law and the gospel, as Paul uses elsewhere, has been clarified this way, and I think this is helpful. The law says, do this, do these things. And the gospel says, Christ has done it all. Martin Luther expressed it this way, and I found this helpful. The law says, do this, and it's never done. The the gospel, or grace, says, believe this, and everything is already done. And that is what I spent years feeling. The law says, do this, and it literally is never accomplished. It's never done. I can't do it. And once I I think that I'm doing it, I, I see something new and I'm reminded that I have so much more to do. But the gospel, the the promise, the good news of God's word says everything is already done. Or as Jesus says from the cross, it is finished. The law demands and the gospel provides. The law kills and the gospel breathes life. The law directs your eyes inward. And the gospel says, look at Christ crucified for you in your place. So I want to look today at how Paul uh, teach, what Paul teaches us about the law in our text from Galatians this morning. And we're going to see a handful of things. The first one is this, that the law does not replace or amend the promise. This is an important uh, point that Paul is making to the Galatians. Verse 16 says this, The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. So Paul helps us translate and understand and interpret what, what Genesis tells us. He makes it clear that the law was given after the promise. The promise came first, and then later the law was added. And that the law was never meant to replace or to amend the promise. Think about when that promise was first given. I want to I trace this through the Old Testament for us uh, briefly this morning uh, so that we gain a greater understanding of what Paul is saying to the Galatians. We'll start in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve have sinned against God. They were hiding from him because of their shame uh, over their sin. And in Genesis 3, God speaks. And and, and in particular, we're going to look at when God speaks to the deceiver, to the serpent. In Genesis 3.15, God says, he promises here, I will put enmity, strife, uh, between you, speaking to the, the serpent deceiver, and the woman. And between your offspring, that's how our translation words it, but it's really the word seed, between your offspring or your seed and hers. He, so he's speaking of the seed, the seed of the woman, he will crush your head, God says to the serpent, and you will strike his heel. So then we move forward to Genesis chapter 12. God begins making promises to Abram. Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your 
seed to your offspring, I will give this land. And then move forward a couple chapters to Genesis 15. God speaks to Abraham, makes promises to Abraham again. And he says, look up to the sky, count the stars, if you could actually count them. And and then he says this, so shall your seed be. So shall your offspring be. And then jump forward a couple more chapters to Genesis 17, verse 7. God says, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants is what we find in Genesis 17. But it's the same word. It's the word seed between you and your seed for generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants or your seed after you. And and then finally, uh, uh, we arrive at this tour on uh, Genesis chapter 21. And what, what God says in Genesis 21 is that Isaac is the son of the promise. Isaac is that seed, that at least first fulfillment of this promise. And, and Paul makes the point that God repeatedly, in Galatians, Paul makes the point that God repeatedly uses the singular word seed, not seeds. And so Paul, what he does here is he interprets Genesis and this promise through the seed for us. He tells us how we understand it. And I love it when the New Testament does this. It takes all the mystery out. So when we see this word seed show up in Genesis, Paul says, that's Jesus. That, that's, that is Jesus. He draws a straight line from Genesis 3 and Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 and Genesis 21 all the way to Jesus. He says, this, this is all talking about Jesus. All of those promises of God's provision and blessing are fulfilled in Christ. Now, now you might be thinking, okay, that's helpful Old Testament history, but, but what difference does this really make? And that's where we look back to the opening words of our text for today, verse 15, where Paul says, he says, let me use an example from everyday life. What's the example he uses? He talks about establishing a contract, a covenant. He says, when you establish a a contract, when you enter into a contract with somebody, you can't later come back and change the terms of the contract. Imagine you are working for a company and, and your boss decides that it's time to retire. And so they come to you and they offer uh, you an opportunity to, to purchase the business. You come to an agreement and the two of you draft the necessary legal documents in order to enter into that contract for the purchase of the business. The previous owner is going to receive monthly payments from you in return for uh, your ownership, eventual ownership of the business. Everything's going great. First year goes by. Everybody's abiding by the contract. Everything's great. And then partway through the second year, uh, the previous owner comes back to you and says, you know, it was, th- things are okay, but I really need more money. And so they uh, show up at, at your office with some, some new paperwork. And they want to sort of reconstitute the covenant, the, the contract. What's your response? You'd say, hey, you can't do that. 
Like we, we had an agreement. We, we made a contract. You can't just change the terms of it down the road because it's not working out as you thought. You'd say, I'm, I've fulfilled my part of the contract. I've fulfilled my obligation. You can't, you can't uh, go back on that. You can't change it after it's in place. And that's exactly the point that Paul is making in our text for today. He says that the law came 430 years after the promise. And, and he's making the point that God is true to his word, that God wouldn't go back and change that original contract 430 years later because he felt like it wasn't going well for him. That's not how God works. He doesn't make promises to Abraham and then centuries later come in and change and renegotiate the whole thing. Verse 17 says, what I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. Paul is making it really clear here. He's using legal language to make it clear for us and for these confused Galatian believers that God has not changed his promise. And the law is not to be seen as an amendment to or a replacement of God's promise to Abraham. God didn't make a deal promising one thing and then change the terms and conditions midstream. This law that was given does not change the promises God had made. It doesn't change the fact that God is the one who blesses, that God is the one who saves. Paul highlights for us the promise, and he makes clear that the law does not replace or amend that promise. Number two, we see this, that the law does not ensure our eternal inheritance. Verse 18 says, For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through promise. Think about what God has promised to Abraham. He promised to give him land, to make him into a great nation. He promised that all nations would be blessed through him. Remember that none of this was because of Abraham's own merit. He didn't deserve this promise of God. In fact, Abraham wasn't all that great of a guy. There were some things that Abraham did in his life that if your son came home and, and told you that he had done the same thing, you would be ashamed. You'd be horrified. The hope of heaven and, and all that comes with it, eternity in the presence of God, freedom from sin, immortal, glorified, Bodies, all of that is often referred to in Scripture as our inheritance. Acts chapter 20, for example, speaks of, of God's grace promising to us and giving us, guaranteeing an inheritance. Ephesians chapter 1 speaks of the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our future inheritance. So this is really common language in the Scriptures, both Old and New Testament, and it has its roots in the promise of God made to Abraham for all nations, that all nations would be blessed through the seed that God would give to Abraham. And our text is clear that it is not the law that promises and ensures our inheritance. It is not our obedience or our 
ability to perform. It is not through self-improvement or striving for holiness that we receive the assurance of eternal life. It is through the promise. If we want assurance, we never look within. We never look into our own hearts. If you examine your heart looking for assurance, all that you will find is a thousand reasons that God should reject you. And so God says, stop looking into your own heart. Stop looking at your own life and look to Christ. Look to the promises of God. Look to that thread running, beginning in Genesis 3, running through the scriptures, leading us to the cross where Christ died for our sin. The promise of God isn't finished. We we are promised eternity with God. We are promised that Christ will come again to make all things new. That, That glorious inheritance that lies in front of us, Paul is making a very firm, emphatic point that it does not depend upon the law, on your ability to perform and achieve and improve, but it depends solely, only on the promises of God. What else do we learn about the law? Third, we see that the law makes sin obvious. Look at verse 19 of our text. Why then was the law given at all? This is a an important rhetorical question that Paul asks. What If this is true, if, if even heaven and eternity doesn't depend on your performance, on your ability to achieve the law, then why was the law given? And Paul answers the question. He says it was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law wasn't given to make you holy. It wasn't given so that you might impress God with how good of a person you are. The law was given because of sin. Paul explains this in more depth in in Romans chapter 5. If you're looking for something to read this week, read through Romans maybe chapter 4 through 7. It'll give you a good, uh, Paul deals with these themes in in more depth in uh, the middle of, of his letter to the Romans. Those chapters really deal directly with many of the questions that we're wrestling with today. But in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, we find these words. And these are shocking words. Paul says this in Romans 5.20. The law was given, the law was brought in. Why? So that the trespass, so that sin might increase. It's counterintuitive doesn't make sense in our minds. We think of it often in the opposite sense. We usually rationally think that God would have given the law so that sin would decrease. That's how human law works, right? We have a, we have a problem, and so our legislators in, in Bismarck meet every two years, and they, they create and pass new laws to address problems that come up in society, to try to do away with those problems, to try to control evil. And Paul says you can never think about God's law in that way. That God's law was, the law was added so that the trespass might increase. How do we make sense of that? How can it be? 
quite simply because God knows that commands don't actually stop bad behavior. I don't have to tell you this. You see it around you all the time. If a, if a command could stop bad behavior, then we wouldn't be gripped as a nation by an opioid epidemic. If a command could stop bad behavior, we wouldn't have one of the highest per capita murder rates in the developed world. So what does the law do? The law makes sin obvious. When God speaks with this word of law, his intent is for sin to increase. In other words, for sin to become increasingly obvious to the point that we can't see anything else and we can't deny it. He he wants the water level of our sin to rise to the point that we cannot keep our head above the water. He wants to checkmate us for us to see and truly believe and become convinced that we are sinners through and through, nowhere to run, no more options at the end of our rope. And so God gives his law. The law was added to make sin undeniable and obvious, to leave you with nowhere to turn. The fourth thing we see is this, that the law cannot give life. This is one of the most common Mistakes that you see in American evangelicalism. The lie that if you just obey a little more, you will have better life. Now, there's a a human sense, a horizontal sense in which that is true. But the law can never actually give life. Verse 21 says, Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not, Paul answers his own question. For if the law that if the law had been given, or sorry, for if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness could have come by the law. But scripture has, Paul says, locked up everything under the control of sin. So that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who, not those who obey the law, those who believe. Paul says the law was given, and when it was given, it actually locked up, it held everything in custody under sin. So that we might see our sin recognize that the law could never give life and turn to the true giver of life. Realizing that the law was given so that our our sin would be clear and convincing might seem as if it would be opposed to the promises of God. How could God giving a law that causes more sin uh, be in line with his promises? It might seem, it might feel like God is set up a system where we are all bound to fail and therefore bound to be condemned. But the reality is we are already condemned before God on our own because of our sin nature. We are born as sinners in opposition to God. And so the law is merely pointing out what is true. It's making a reality obvious before our eyes, convincing us of what is true. The law is not opposed to the promises of God. Why? Because the law cannot give life. 
Try as hard as you might. You cannot get life through the law because it's not what it was designed for. In fact, it was designed to kill. It was designed uh, to bring us to the end of our life, not to bring life. It was designed to to bring an end to any delusion of of self-righteousness or self-sufficiency or any uh, chance of self-justification, to squeeze the breath out of our pride out of our misguided thoughts that we might just be able to save ourselves. That if we work harder, if we behave more, if we're more moral, that we might please God on our own. The law was given to get rid of that, to prove to us that we could never find life through our obedience. The law was given to kill those delusions. It cannot give life, it cannot save. That's what Paul is telling us. You could have the Ten Commandments in every classroom, on every street corner, tattooed on every forearm, and nobody would ever be saved by it. Because all the law can do is condemn. When you look at those Ten Commandments, if you, if you do it and you're not delusional, all you will see is the areas in which you are not living up to God's commands. But God has given us another word. The word of the gospel, the good news that while you won't keep those commandments, that there is one who did on your behalf, in your place, that Jesus, the Son of God, shed his blood for commandment breakers in order that they may find life, true life, eternal life, not through the law, but by the promise. And so the final thing I want to point out today is that the law was a guardian until faith in Christ was revealed clearly. We see this in in verse 24. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified not by the law, but by faith. Think about this imagery of a guardian. The, The law was a guardian. God made promises to Abraham, promises that are received only by faith, And then he gave the law later, a law that could never save, a law that could never give life, so that they would see clearly that if they have any shot at those promises that God made, if they have any chance at eternal life and the inheritance that was promised, that it must be accomplished by someone else. A guardian might ensure obedience. A guardian might keep one safe keep one from running away. Paul makes clear that the law is good, it's important, it has a purpose, it's critical. Paul said in in 1 Timothy that the law is good as long as we use it properly. And so that bears the question, what is the purpose of the law? What is the function of the law for believers today? If the law does not replace the promise, if it doesn't amend God's promises if it doesn't ensure our eternal inheritance, if it makes our sin obvious, if it can't give life, if it's a guardian, what what does it mean for us today? What is our relationship with the law? The Reformers spent a lot of time processing this question coming out of the world that they uh, were living in, coming out of that medieval church era in which Rome had created a whole system uh, built around adding to the gospel, misusing the law, using the law to threaten uh, and ensure the, the obedience 
uh, and monetary gain of, of their parishioners. Uh, so the reformers identified three functions of the law, three things that the law does biblically. We often think of those three functions of the law in this way as a curb, a mirror, and a guide. The first one is uh, a curb. The first function of the law is that it, it regulates human behavior. It sets up a, a standard of moral values by which societies are, are regulated, by which evil is restrained. But it also acts as a mirror. It shows us our sin. It shows us God's hatred of our sin. It causes my conscience to be troubled. It shows me my need for a savior. Many refer to this as sort of the, the primary use of the law or the theological use of the law. The, the, that the law causes us to see and be convinced and even overwhelmed by our sin so that we see that we need a savior. This is the diagnosis function. The law diagnoses our condition. And then the third function of the law is that of guide. The law guides us in how we should live. This is so important. The law is good when it's used rightly. But it never saves. It never gives life. It never breathes a word of hope or comfort. It always accuses. It always condemns. You know, Paul's teaching on the law forces us to do some self-evaluation. It forces us to ask the question of how, how we view the law. How we apply the law to other people. Uh, understanding this biblical approach to the law is so important, not just for you and your own personal assurance of salvation, but, but it's also important for the way that you interact with your neighbor, with lost people around you. Galatians 3 forces me to, to ask the question of myself, am I driven primarily by the law or by the promise? Am I fundamentally a person of law or a person of gospel, of promise. It might be helpful to think about some traits of people who are living by the law. You might notice this. You might see this in your own heart. I certainly did. People who are living according to the law are critical of everything. They're known for what they're against. They're continually keeping score, keeping a tally sheet. They hold on to hurt. They always talk about fairness. They're afraid of grace. They're sure to, to counter any message of the gospel with, with an e equal measure of talking about God's wrath. But what about people who are living according to the promise, walking in the gospel? The list is, is much more simple. They live in awe of the fact that God saved a sinner like them. They celebrate the joys and victories of others, particularly when sinners come to receive grace. The promise of God is that we are justified. We are made right with God. We receive our promised inheritance by faith alone. Put the law in its proper place, its proper, uh, its proper place in your mind and in your heart. Live as a person of the promise, in awe of the fact that God has saved a sinner like you. Celebrate when others 
receive God's grace. And it really comes back to this. If we misunderstand the place and the function of the law, we will always struggle to understand the beauty and the joy of the gospel. The gospel invites you into a life of joy and freedom in Christ. Because Jesus really has done everything. Because it really is finished. And you may receive it by faith alone. And never by the law. Or as Paul said, now that this faith has come, you are no longer under a guardian. You are free in Christ. We were reminded by our kids this morning as they sang to us, you are free in Jesus, free to serve the Lord as a, as a response to what he's done, not in order to get anything. Because we have been freely given far better than we could ever hope to earn through obedience to the law. That is what God has promised. That you have everything in Christ. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for your promises to us. We thank you for the gospel, for this good news that you loved the world, that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, to die in our place for our sin, to give us his righteousness as a gift. Lord, we confess that we have at times, maybe some of us today, looked at the law uh, for, for what only, or looked to the law, for what only uh, the gospel, your promises, can give to us. Maybe we have judged others according to the law. We have been law people. Our hearts are inclined to earning and deserving and achieving. And yet, Lord, we confess and we believe what your word says, that we can only ever receive the promise, the inheritance, forgiveness, and eternal life. As we Consider your word today, Lord. We repent of our sin. Uh, we turn to you for hope and assurance. And we thank you that we don't have to look within our own hearts and our own lives for assurance of our salvation, of our forgiveness, of our eternal life, but that instead we look to the cross, to your Son crucified for us, and that we can receive full assurance by faith in him. And so, Lord, may we uh, continually, every day, turn to you in repentance and faith. Keep us at the cross. Strengthen our faith that we might know and understand and rejoice in the beauty and the joy of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.